Do you want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily. It's called Spotify for Podcasters. It lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. You know I love that, and I promise you the other platforms don't offer that. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can also earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. I've been using Spotify for Podcasters from the very start. I highly recommend you give it a try. Just don't post on Monday. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com slash podcasters to get started. Welcome, everyone, to Monday Match Analysis. I'm Gil Gross. It is a loaded show today. Going over Rome, um, Novak Djokovic is the winner. His 36th Masters 1000 title. He beat Diego Schwartzman, who had an incredible run to the final, going through Rafael Nadal, beating him in straight sets. And uh, I will pay special attention to, of course, the final, as always, but also... Schwartzman's win over Nadal. A quick shout out to Denis Shapovalov, who continued his great form that he showed in the U.S. Open, making the semifinals in Rome, where he lost uh, to Diego Schwartzman in an excellent match that I won't have time to go over. And also a shout out to Casper Ruud, one of the promising young stars in the sport who really stands out on clay, and he's probably the one of the only players in his generation who kind of has that clay court specialist designation slapped onto his game. But he kind of has that uh, probably his best tournament of his career, if I'm not forgetting any of his uh, other maybe more possibly more impressive results. I'm pretty sure this was it. Uh, Also in the show, the first and only installment of the French Open power rankings. Yes, we've been kind of robbed this year due to COVID-19. Uh, Because normally we get this long stretch of major list tennis from after the Australian Open. It's a couple months go by uh, where where we don't, you know, where we're kind of waiting for the French Open, so to speak. And every week, French Open power rankings, French Open power rankings again and again. Well, this year, this is it. One French Open power rankings. It's unbelievable. Normally, this is a big thing, but this will have to do. Okay, so... The only French Open power rankings because the draw comes out on Thursday. So I'm not going to do another. So this is it. Um, So that's later on. And then a new segment, possibly a a pilot coming up at the end of the show. The Twitter question of the week. Yes, I posed a question to my Twitter followers. You can follow me on Twitter at Gil Gross. Uh, The question is, who is the fourth favorite? to win Roland Garros because I've n- I I think that it's never been a more difficult question. The top 3 very clear in my opinion. That fourth spot, who is it? Very tough to say. Normally it's a lot easier. So uh I will read your Twitter responses to that question. And if you like that segment, say uh say so in the comments. But of course we start with Sunday's final Novak Djokovic, a straight set victory over Diego Schwartzman, 7-5, 6-3. 
Um, quick summary of the match, shall we? Let's do that. Um, beginning was weird. Very streaky. Diego comes out to a, a three-love lead. Novak all over the place. And then Djokovic strikes back. Big run of points. Diego's making the errors. And Novak tightens up. So then it, it's 3-4. Schwartzman serving when when I feel like this match actually kind of kicks into gear. Um, and it's a really nice hold from Diego. Winning a lot of the backhand-to-backhand exchanges, an exceptional forehand pass at 30-15, an ace to close the game. So a good hold for all, and now we kind of have ourselves a match because the first six games were very one-sided. Uh, or I should actually probably say the first seven games were very one-sided, uh, first on Schwartzman's end and then on Djokovic's end. Um, I just want to say at this point, though, in the first set, it does kind of feel... Like, Schwartzman has an edge in the long rallies. Especially at this 4-all game, and after that 3-4 game, I kind of make a note to myself that it seems like Diego is getting back into the points quite easily. So his, his defense is very effective, and it seems like Novak isn't really, isn't really able to sustain offense. He doesn't. He never really had the range on his drive backhand, and I felt that Diego was really looking for the Novak backhand. He was hitting his forehand down the line really often to find that backhand to backhand pattern. Um, and whenever he was in a defensive position, and he found the Djokovic backhand, oftentimes he was able to get back into the point. So Djokovic just. Didn't have the range on his drive backhand, and he was going to the drop shot very, very often. This set, when it came to baseline rallies, was kind of live by the Novak Djokovic drop shot, die by the Novak Djokovic drop shot. The frequency was really off the charts. Diego was doing it quite a bit too, so that told me that uh, the conditions were very, very heavy and hard to hit through. And these guys are both great movers, so both of them went to the drop shot often, uh, but Novak incredibly often. And I will get to that in more depth after I'm basically done uh, going through the match. Um, this four-all game is a really tight one. Schwartzman almost gets the break to... Um, finish off the, the the set, or excuse me, to serve for the set. And I do have screenshots of that. Again, what it, you know, as I said, this is really largely in the hands of the Novak Djokovic drop shot. So here's break point for Diego Schwartzman to serve for it. And Novak hits a cross-court backhand drop shot from a very neutral position. And Schwartzman gets up to it in, I'd say, plenty of time and actually redrops down the line. Gets it pretty low on Novak. Novak has to lunge forward and dig this up from a low contact point, and he scoops it cross-court. And and this is a, a really crucial error from Schwartzman. If you've ever played doubles, you kind of know that when when the ball is on one side of the court, so in this case, the ball is on 
the left sideline from Djokovic's perspective, you want to cover the line with your with your positioning. That's just how the angles work. Um, if if the ball's in the center of the court, then of course you can take the center of the net. But if the ball is really on the left side of the court, then you want to close in on the left side of the net to cover the line. Um, and in this case, Novak is actually on the wrong side of the service tee. So Diego has a continental grip here with a chance to get the break, and he actually goes cross-court. And Novak is able to volley into the wide-open court for a winner. If Diego took this ball down the line as he should have, just given Novak's court position, which was covering the cross-court, you know, really giving up the down the line, if Diego went down the line here, he would have likely served for this first set. And it would have been a product of really winning most of the backhand-to-backhand exchanges, winning the long rallies, uh, serve the... The serve-return game was, for the most part, a non-factor because of how well Schwartzman was usually able to return. And Djokovic um, has has the edge in that. And I thought that was really important throughout the match because Novak gets easier points and he gets the free points on serve and he gets uh, a couple more serve plus one forehand kind of easy points. And I'll talk about how Schwartzman played this match a little bit differently than he played the Nadal match. Uh, But ultimately, he was in a position to serve for this first set because he was winning the long exchanges, because he was able to dig out of difficult positions, find the Novak backhand, win the backhand-to-backhand exchanges, But and this is very important, not only win those exchanges, but find those exchanges by trading the forehand down the line, which he did with incredible frequency. Later in this game, it's still going to be a difficult game for, for Novak. Here's Deuce, and again, Djokovic goes to the to the drop shot. This time, he's in a better position to hit it, and there's a couple things I like. First of all, Schwartzman's a little bit further back. I would say Schwartzman is probably three feet further back, three or four feet further back. Djokovic is two feet, two to three feet further up. So while those numbers in themselves could sound small, if you combine them, we're talking about a good like eight feet of of distance. Um, so that's a big deal. Djokovic is in a better position to hit this drop shot, and I really like that he hit this down the line because when you hit the drop shot down the line, the ball does not um, take as much time to travel, and time is money when it comes to a drop shot. I mean, it's it's really all about the location of the second bounce and how long it takes for that ball to bounce a second time. I mean, that's just pure, like kind of an analytical physics way of looking at it. Um, So more often than not, Novak will take his backhand drop shot down the line. And it's generally more effective when he does that. And now you'll see the difference. Schwartzman is not able to get this back because it is a better drop shot from Novak's hit from a better position. So Djokovic gets that hold at four all, really um, winning the cat and mouse points. In fact, there's another another point in here where I believe he uh, hits a really nice lob. At four five, Diego um, escapes. Again, the backhand, the backhand really not firing. Um, Novak plays a passive point at 30-40, and Diego comes up with a forehand cross-court winner. 
Djokovic misses his backhand down the line at 40-all, going for that shot. He just did not have that shot in the first set. It was it was the worst part of Novak's game is that he just didn't have the drive backhand, wasn't able to create offense with it. Um, and then Schwartzman with a really nice uh, serve plus backhand winner cross court um, to hold. Really nice. Five all, uh, Schwartzman will regret this game because Djokovic made three drop shot errors. So at four all, it was kind of effective. Djokovic winning the cat and mouse points at five all. It, it was not, and and Djokovic had an ace in that game at fifteen thirty to aid his his effort at at Deuce. Schwartzman missed a return that he should have made, and on on add in, Schwartzman made a forehand error, and then at five six, the wheels come off for Schwartzman completely. I mean, when it when you really look at what decided this set. It was a pretty even set, and I'd say Schwartzman played maybe a hair better in this set for most of it. But no one, but Djokovic never played a game, at least after it, it was back on serve. As soon as it was back on serve, Djokovic never played a game quite as badly as Schwartzman played this 5-6 game. He made two neutral backhand unforced errors, uh, and hit a double fault to get to love 40. Pushed it back to 30-40, but Djokovic played it, plays a good point on set point. Schwartzman misses a forehand that. If you asked him, he would say he should have made it, but but Novak was applying the pressure on, on that shot. Um, some untimely errors, though. Even when Schwartzman, when you go back to the beginning of the set, when Schwartzman was up a break at 3-2, you look at that service game from Schwartzman, not great. So, yes, Novak made errors, but I would say Schwartzman um, was a little bit—it was really the the timeliness of the errors, and he kind of made his errors in bunches on serve. When you make your errors in bunches on serve, that's when they are going to hurt more. And I just didn't feel like Diego was really— I don't have a—excuse me because I don't think this is the best way to put it. I don't think Diego was choosing the right spots for his errors uh, very well, really, throughout this match. Okay, quickly to the second set now. Uh, first of all, in the second set, I begin tracking Novak Djokovic's drop shots as I'm watching the match because I'm very curious. I want to, I want to know, okay, how effective is this play? Now, sure enough, Novak actually tones down the drop shot in. But I will let you know in the end uh, what the results of this tracking is. Um, game one was not good for Djokovic. He came back two bad drop shots and a pair of forehand errors. He, errors he's broken in game one, but breaks right back early in this set. Um, Novak gets in trouble in two all. Again, two errors by Diego on break points. So he has his chance. The match is very even at this point. Um, I don't think that, um, I think that Novak is slowly beginning to find his backhand, but still there's a really big gap between the Djokovic forehand, which he's hitting quite well in the second set and he's creating offense from, and the Djokovic backhand, which really doesn't show up, um, until 3-4. And at 3-4, Djokovic breaks with an unbelievable drop, uh, excuse me, an unbelievable forehand lob, um, and then a tremendous backhand down the line winner. This this game at 3-4 was unbelievable stuff 
from Djokovic, and then a great, very dominant hold to close the match at um, at 5-3. So what really stood out here is that Djokovic had this tremendous level change when he needed it at the end of the second set. And really, he was probably at about 75% of his powers. I might be... No, I'll say 75% of his powers throughout the entire match, at times below that. And then just at the end of the second set, it was blip a couple games, two games there, where he he found the drive backhand, hit some really good backhands down the line to create offense, which he could not find for the entire match. He finally found it and got to the finish line, hit the finish line rather quickly, just with this quick level raise when he needed it. Um, so all in all, what Novak's match was here was very reminiscent of what he did all week and very reminiscent of what he's been doing recently, which is finding the level he needs at the right time. And really, it reminded me, his title run here really reminded me of his title run at the Western and Southern Open. It was generally not pretty. He It was difficult. He had to work hard. He had to sweat. He got upset with himself at times, but when he really needed to raise the level, it was always there. So he won with grit and clutchness. And those are the attributes that have stood out. That, that stood out in the Western and Southern uh, Open, and that stood out in Rome. So now two Masters uh, titles since the restart for Djokovic and uh, just just the blip at the U.S. Open. No surprise to me. I don't know if any. I don't know if other people are surprised, but again, um, no residue from the U.S. Open default. Again, the penalty for that was he lost his chance to win the 2020 U.S. Open. It was never bigger than that. Uh, you know, after it happened, a lot of people were making it bigger than that. I don't know how Novak will recover. Uh, what's he going to do? How's he ever going to get over this? No, he'll get over it. Like you know, life goes on, and, and life did go on here. So, so Djokovic back in the win column. And, you know, at, at times he struggled with his forehand this week. In this match, I believe he struggled with his backhand and, and went to the drop, drop shot over and over again. Uh, but at the end of the day, Djokovic gets it done. What was the result of my second set charting? Novak, in points that he hit the backhand drop shot, was one of five. Forehand drop shot, he hits it far less. He was one of one. So as a total, two of seven. So, so not effective. Not effective. I don't know what it looked like in the first set because uh, I wasn't charting it in the first set. But in the second set, it wasn't effective. He just uh, went to it less. So let's talk about that. Now, this is something that I um, identified really early in 2020. Not, not to pat myself in the back, but I did. Um, very early in 2020, I noticed that Novak was going to the, this drop shot with unbelievable frequency. And my friend Jeff Sackman at Tennis Abstract saw my tweet and actually confirmed it with data, which is which is always nice. Um, I said, look, I feel like people are still discovering that Djokovic has become one of the most frequent drop shotters on tour. It's been this way throughout 2020. His backhand dropper is absolute money when the shot selection is right. And Jeff looked at uh, his database and confirmed, indeed, in the non-random sample of match charting 
uh, matches from the last 52 weeks. Djokovic hits drop shots for 1.9% of his baseline shots. Only a handful of players hit more, and most ATPers are below 1%. This uh, Twitter interaction was on August 29th, and since then, the drop shots have not slowed down by any means for Novak Djokovic. And on clay, a surface where, where it requires a little bit more perfection to, to hit through opponents off the ground, you can expect to see even more drop shots from Novak, who is looking for ways to abbreviate the point. Um, and I guess just looking to, to you know add to his offensive arsenal. It's, it's very, very interesting, and it's worth examining on today's show. So I want to take a moment to talk about the Novak drop shot. Is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? What does it mean? What does it mean? And how can it be effective? First of all, let's start with, uh, I would say, the foundation of this conversation is how good is he at hitting the shot? And I want to key, on, key in on his backhand drop shot because that's the side that he feels the need to drop shot on. And it's not, it's not really surprising. One... It's probably a little bit easier uh, to disguise. Um, the grip change is a little bit easier. Now, the disparity between the shots might be less. So, well, well no, you know, scratch that. The important part is it's a little bit easier to, to disguise because the grip change is not quite as extreme and the take back is a little bit more similar. Furthermore, the backhand is a shot that Novak has a little bit less potency on so the drop shot also becomes more necessary. It, it's harder for Novak to hit through the shot, uh, to hit through the court and hit a penetrating shot on his two-handed backhand. It's a little bit easier on his forehand. So the backhand drop shot, how effective is it? I believe, um, or no, how uh, how good is it? I believe it's very good. I believe that Novak does a very good job of disguising the shot. And I believe that when he steps into the court and the shot selection is right and he's in good position, he rarely misses it and he and he hits it with very good quality. He's got a good backhand drop shot. He's got great feel for it. So that's the foundation. You, you have the you need the skills to pay the bills, and I believe Novak has that on his backhand drop shot. Why is he hitting it more? Well, this is where this conversation gets a lot more interesting. It's probably the first sign that we've seen of Novak Djokovic aging and looking to adapt. And you shouldn't be allergic to that comment if you are someone who roots for Novak Djokovic. That has to happen, and that's a good thing. Just ask Rafael Nadal and anyone who supports him. You have to see some adaptation. Yes, it's a double-edged sword. Yes, it means that some things are are leaving the, the tool shed and some things are being diminished, but you have to see that. And Novak Djokovic going for more drop shots on the backhand side is a remedy for what I believe is to be a decreased shot tolerance or at the very least a diminished desire to play long rallies, a diminished desire 
to rely on on shot tolerance and cardio and fitness to win tennis matches, something that Novak was very, very willing to do um, for most of the last decade. And I would say, especially, especially pre-2017, and to the most fullest extent in 2011, when Novak was was really willing to dig in and grind if that's what it took um, to, to win. You know, and was willing to play lung buster after lung buster. So that Novak, it, it's it's leaving the building. It is not happening anymore. So I, I think that what has happened is Djokovic has surrendered an advantage. Uh, Djokovic has surrendered a sense of having superior shot selection against everyone he plays. And ha- he now wants to look for ways to, to shorten the points, something that Federer has looked to do something that Nadal has looked to do. And now it is Djokovic joining the party, but he has done it in a somewhat unconventional way. He's done it in a way that we really haven't seen. Actually, Federer did add the drop shot. He didn't always have that in his career. And he added it to to try to get better on clay because clay is harder to hit through. Um, but Novak, this is kind of the most apparent thing that he's looked to do. So yeah, it is a double-edged sword. He needs to know how to use it best. And that's where it really comes down to shot selection because you can have an effective shot and it can be something that is good for him to implement into his game and and something that can be useful and something that can shorten points. And really, it can add to his offensive arsenal on his backhand side and it can add to the variance on that side. And it's matchup specific. So when he plays a guy like Daniil Medvedev, who um, is, well, I don't know if he's really the best example, but someone who is not really the most comfortable at the net, it can be very, very effective because he doesn't want to play backhand to backhand um, against Medvedev. He'd much rather find a find a good shot, hit the drop shot, make Medvedev kind of use his cat and mouse skills and and make him volley. He'd much rather do that. There are tons of matchups that Djokovic will find where players will not want to do that. Against RBA in that semifinal at the Western and Southern, I don't think Djokovic would have won that match without the drop shot because RBA was having so much success in the backhand-to-backhand exchanges. But Novak needs to not use it as an escape valve and a way to get out of points. And when he's behind the baseline and when he's trading and when he's in a neutral position and when he has no advantage in the point, when he is not inside the baseline, when his opponent is not in a compromised court position, Djokovic is still hitting this backhand drop shot. And that's where you can see the success rate plummet. So here's the answer in my opinion. Is this going to be a good thing? Is this going to be a bad thing? It depends on if he has the total package. And in this match against Schwartzman, he did not. He did not have his drive backhand to go along with his drop shot. And therefore, I think in his mindset, it created a certain amount of desperation where he felt like he did not have tool, he did not have options, he didn't have multiple ways. To, to finish the points. Instead, he he was kind of 
He felt like there was only one way, and that was the drop shot. He felt that there were two options, either extend the point or drop shot, and that is not a good position for Djokovic to be in, or find a forehand. That was another option. What Novak wants to have is he wants to have, I can crush my backhand down the line um, or cross court, or I can hit my, my, my drop shot. And if he has that full arsenal, then I think the the decision-making calculus has a much better chance to be correct and proper. Uh, but if Djokovic is going to use his drop shot as a way to end the points from a compromised position because he does not want to um, dig in physically, that's where we could see him sacrifice the efficiency. That is not to say that it is always a terrible strategy, and maybe it is better for him to conserve his energy at times. But that is to say that he is going to, to win a less than ideal percentage of those points. So let's continue to monitor that. How is the Novak drop shot? Because it is going to be a key for him on this surface. All right. Let us move on now to the Diego Schwartzman rafael Nadal upset. And I want to start with the fact that uh, Diego Schwartzman brought his girlfriend to this match. And um, it is by far the most romantic thing that anyone has ever done to bring their girlfriend to an empty <laughs> stadium and beat Nadal on clay. So I just want to throw that out there. If, if you think that you have done anything romantic in your life, it pales in comparison to what Diego Schwartzman did. I uh, just want to really go through the major themes in this match. It was, look, for for any match to look like it did, for Schwartzman to, to win so handedly in the first set and then uh, to take a, a tight second set. But, you know, in the end, it was really Schwartzman in control. For that to happen, you really need both sides to, to look a certain way. And for Schwartzman, it was his A-plus game. For Nadal, it, it was not his night. He did not have it. It was not good. But the first thing I want to compare it to is really the, the match that Nadal lost in Monte Carlo last year to Fabio Fanini. And I have not seen this comparison made. I am shocked because the similarities are just shocking. You can go back to that match and... The Monday match analysis after that match when Fanini beat Nadal was really centered around what happens to the, to the Nadal forehand when it lacks in confidence and what the elite righty backhand can do to take advantage of that. And it's kind of this really poisonous concoction for Nadal when his forehand isn't good and he plays a select few elite righty backhands who are able to take the ball on the rise and push Nadal around the court um, and take advantage of his short cross-court forehand. It is, it is a select group of players, but it is the elite. Uh, Diego Schwartzman's backhand is in that elite class, and I mentioned he was it was better than Djokovic's backhand for most of this final. So that, that should tell you something. But the Nadal forehand is, is, that's the best friend that he did not have, you know, in his pocket. 
to aid him in this match. That was the big problem. And a lot of people pointed to the first serve percentage, which was abysmal. But let's be real about this. The first serve percentage against Diego Schwartzman shouldn't be that big a deal. Because against most players, first of all, Nadal can protect his second serve. And against Diego Schwartzman, you're really p playing most points from neutral anyway. So the fact that the real problem in this match was not the Nadal first serve, although obviously it would have helped him and it would have been nice if he didn't miss all of his first serves, which he practically did. But the big problem was that Schwartzman was the better player, you know, really once the once the points got started in all in all phases. And that all came down to the Nadal forehand and Schwartzman Schwartzman's impeccable movement, his unbelievable defense in this match, and his propensity to uh, take the ball on the rise, take it early, and hit the ball flat through the court, and even his aggressiveness off the first shot, which was the number one thing that he did a great job against Nadal, and then he really backed off and, and wasn't able to do that against Djokovic. I felt that Schwartzman was much more aggressive on the first ball. And when I say first ball, I mean uh, the first ground stroke after the serve. I thought he was much more aggressive off the first ball against Nadal than he was against Djokovic. Maybe that has to do with the depth of return, but I really don't think so. I thought it was uh, a mindset thing for Schwartzman, and I do think he played... Schwartzman played much more daring tennis against Nadal than he did against Djokovic. He played well against both players. Um, I mean, Schwartzman had a great week. He played amazing against, he needed to play amazing against Chapo as well in the semifinal. But he played more daring tennis against Nadal. It was Schwartzman who had an easier time hitting through these heavy nighttime pretty cool conditions. And that is because of what I just said. It is because Nadal did not have his forehand, but it is also because Schwartzman was taking way more time away and was flattening out the ball and hitting on the rise. And because of his court position and the way he was um the way he was really just flattening the ball and hitting through the court, he was he was actually much more offensive than Nadal, and he was also moving better than Nadal, and Rafa looked slow. So really what you'll see here in this match is Nadal actually outclassed in all phases of baseline tennis, which is just a sight that you like, you basically never see. Let me just show you, though, let me illustrate Nadal and the forehand woes. It, it wasn't, now look, let me be clear about something. You could watch this match, and, and I could put together a montage of forehand errors from Nadal. I could do that. But that is not the essence of what was the problem here. The essence of the problem was not that Nadal couldn't make a forehand. It was that, now that actually became the problem at the very end of the second set. That's besides the point. The essence of the problem throughout the match was that Nadal could not generate offense off of his forehand. Because of the Schwartzman movement, uh, but mostly because of the fact that he was not going after it because uh, he didn't have the confidence to go after it. Just wasn't hitting it well. Too much topspin, too much loop, uh, not enough depth. 
That's a big one. Not enough depth is is maybe should have been bullet point number one. Um, and and I, actually also not enough acceleration in a lot of cases. So here's an example. Look, forehand, middle of the court. Nadal on clay is supposed to be able to do damage from this position, right? Central ball. Nadal really has his feet under him. He should be able to lean into this forehand and attack it. And, and he tries, but look how short in the court this lands. It lands inside the service box. And Schwartzman is, is just, he's, he's very, very quick. He's far, he, he's got a, a good defensive court position here. And he's going to turn his, turn his hips beautifully and slide into this defensive backhand. He's going to put it right on the baseline. Point is back to neutral. How about another? Uh, this time Nadal hits a really great wide serve on the ad side. And Schwartzman is outside the doubles alley. He goes cross court with this return. And Nadal gets his forehand. And he's got the whole court to hit into. But this is what I'm talking about when I say it wasn't the errors. It was the passivity. The lack of, uh, you know, the lack of sharpness, the lack of deadliness. Nadal just hooks this inside the court, not close enough to the line. And this is easy back to neutral for Diego Schwartzman. And now you take it a step forward. Here's a four, uh, a step further, rather. Here's a forehand that Nadal should be stepping into and creating offense with. And again, it's too short, or, it, or it's, at least it's rather short. It's rather central. It's got a lot of topspin, but it doesn't penetrate through the court at all. And now uh, Nadal is open to a counterattack because he's he's really up on the baseline because, because of uh, his intention on the last ball, which was actually to build and to break Schwartzman's contact point. But instead, he does not break his contact point. And Schwartzman counterattacks with his unbelievably world-class backhand cross-court, which gave Nadal tons of trouble, and he draws the error here. So, um, or actually, he doesn't draw the error. He he gets to step into a forehand on the next ball. Schwartzman's forehand was more consistent in this match than it usually is, which also really helped him. So, so that was the story, man. Um... It was, it was very much a case of Schwartzman being the, the better baseline player because Nadal didn't have his forehand. And it really just wasn't a good day in the office at all. So Schwartzman played unbelievable. Um, it was an A-plus effort, and I was happy to see that from Diego. Obviously made good on the Nadal victory and went all the way to the final, just didn't have enough against Djokovic. Okay. We are closing in on the latter stages of the show, um, but it is time for everyone's favorite, which is the power rankings. All right, French Open power rankings. Here we go. Um, I'm going to play some music, okay? Shall we? Let's play some music here for the French Open power rankings. Number 10, Stefanos Tsitsipas, okay? Look, a player who has all the attributes to be extremely dangerous on clay, but his first uh, a first round exit in Rome 
and major concerns about the scar tissue that the U.S. Open loss against Borna Cioric left uh, means that I have Stefanos Tsitsipas at a modest position here at number 10. Number 9 is Matteo Berrettini, someone who you could easily underrate for his clay court acumen. But um, actually, two of his titles, two of his three ATP-level titles come on clay, and he's someone who is able to find a lot of forehands on clay, uh, which is what he wants. It's a little bit harder to find his backhand, and and the serve is still very, very potent. He's comfortable on the surface. Berrettini at 9. At number 8, Andre Rublev, someone who I really haven't seen a lot of on this surface, and I'm curious to see what he can bring to the table, but there's no doubt that the way he's able to generate pace and how much he likes a a, a long baseline rally and how he's able to sustain errorless aggression, it should be a very good fit on the surface, and I still regard Andre Rublev quite high. Look at this. They were all in the same quarter at the U.S. Open, but number seven is Daniil Medvedev. It was Medvedev who came out of the U.S. Open quarter, and it is Medvedev who I have in the highest position here for the French Open power rankings, but I am still very suspect on Medvedev, who has still never won a match at the French Open. I do believe he breaks that streak here, but I do not like Medvedev's strokes on clay. I think that it becomes very, very difficult for him to generate pace because he lacks the racket acceleration required on this surface. So I believe Medvedev fights an uphill battle, but still with his movement, with his consistency, and with his serve, he will nonetheless be a very tough out. Number six is Diego Schwartzman, someone who really checks all the boxes other than the serve, and I still think that that could be a hindrance deep in majors is he has to play so much better than his opponent from the baseline in order to win the match because his serve is so underpowered. But this surface gives him a chance to at least play great on return, break serve with frequency. And we, we've seen that Schwartzman can be so, so dangerous um, on return and from neutral positions on this surface. So Schwartzman is number six. At number five is Denis Shapovalov. Wow, a huge jump for the Canadian. Never has he been so high in my power rankings going into a major. But I gotta say, if Schwartzman is able to stay patient and use what Mikhail Yuzny has taught him, which, uh, you know, is really focusing on the shot selection and the consistency and bringing the errors down... Clay should shoot should suit Shapovalov very very well. He's got extra time uh, for his long takebacks, and he'll be able to uh, return aggressively. And it will be hard to rush Shapovalov, which is the best way to attack him. Still a little bit worried about his ability to play defense on this surface. At number four is Sasha Zverev. I've always found that clay is Zverev's most comfortable surface. He can attack, he can defend, the the serve is still a factor, but ultimately, I think he moves great on this surface. I think he has the power to hit through this surface, which is something that um, is a pretty rare combination, the combination that you need on clay. Defense to offense, counter-punching, I'll be looking forward to see if he uh, uses his kind of newfound net pedigree that he showed in the U.S. Open final against Dominic Team, 
And look, it's not enough time for Zverev to work out his second serve woes. I don't think those are going to be, those are going to magically go away. In fact, I'd be shocked if they magically went away. But Zverev still has enough surrounding that weakness that I put him at number four. Number three is Novak Djokovic. I just think that things have looked very, very difficult for him on on clay. And I think that the forehand has not always been firing. Sometimes he's not able to really loosen up his shoulders and generate enough pace on his forehand. And we just see that I don't know if against the two players above him, if he's going to have what it takes um, to really dig in and fight physically, do enough running, do enough defending, as will be required of him, for him to come through a match best of five at the French Open. I just, I'm going by level, and of course Novak Djokovic has has not lost in 2020, but I think that from what I've seen, Clay has been his most challenging surface, and I do think that I would favor the two players above Djokovic, but I have him at number three easily. Number two is Dominic Team, the U.S. Open finalist who will not play any clay court matches in preparation for this French Open, someone who beat Novak Djokovic at last year's French Open and fell to Rafa Nadal in the final. If the conditions are extremely slow, extremely heavy, uh, let's say we're talking night matches, let's say we're talking cold weather, Dominic Team might be the only player strong enough and powerful enough to hit through them from the baseline. But number one is still Rafael Nadal. I will not overreact to one bad match. I will not panic. Nadal has shown time and time again that if he reaches his best level on this surface, that no one can compete with him. He is well-rested. He has had plenty of training. And I do believe that he will work himself into form and ultimately be the favorite at the tail end of this year's French Open. This has been your September 21st French Open Power Rankings ladies and gentlemen. Okay. We cut the music here. I don't know how to fade the music out on this program that I use. Mm. Oh, wait. Oh, no, no. I could have done that. Okay. Hold on. Fade. Fade the music out. Let's do that. You hear the music and we will, we will fade it out like a pro. Yes. Like a pro. There we go. Okay. Um, let us go quickly to the Twitter question of the day. That's how we will wrap things up here on Monday match analysis. I just did my French open power rankings for tonight's MMA. Can't remember a time. It's been more difficult to pick number four through 10. The question is who is your fourth Roland Garros favorite? All right. We have a vote for Chapo, of course. Um, from Paul, uh, let's see, what else do we got? We have a vote for Sasha Zverev from Owen at Tennis Nation. He's on a much better run at the majors than Pass, while Medvedev is winless at Roland Garros. We have a vote for Rafael Nadal. Wow. Okay. A little bit of a, a misread on that one. Um, but Hey, what are you going to do? Um, Nomo says it depends on what you consider the fourth favorite. I think a player like Schwartzman will make it to the quarterfinal or the fourth round, but he will lose when he faces a player in your top three. 
but a player like Vavrinka can beat the top three on a good day, but is less consistent and can lose in in round one. Harsha says Zverev. Stephen Thompson says, feels like it has to be Shapo, Zverev, or Tsitsipas, maybe Monfils, Fonini, Vavrinka, or Schwartzman. Okay, throwing out every name. Hey, I like the strategy. If you say everyone, then, you know, you can't be wrong. Um, how do I scroll down here? Um, who else gets a vote? Schwartzman gets a vote here. Um, Chapo from Leandro. Connor says Zverev with Ferrer in his corner. Yes, I am looking forward to seeing Zverev, uh, Ferrer rather actually uh, in the box. That'll be fun. Uh, Brandon Daniels over at Lav and Smash says Shapovalov. He's played so solid since the restart and looked fresh in Rome this week. Diego had the best week of his life, so the semifinal loss is understandable. Um, overall, though, I'd give him the edge for number four. Zverev and Tsitsipas are five and six for me. Super close to jumping up. Um, Linda wants to wait for the draw. Okay. Um, thank you for everyone who responded to that tweet. I'd say, again, a, a lot of a lot of folks saying uh, Zverev. He was the most popular choice there. And I think that that's wise. I think that's smart. I, I do think that Zverev has has all the tools to to do well on clay. But keep in mind, you know, the, the second serve issues won't be fixed. And for that reason, I don't think he's a threat to win the title. But I do think he's a threat to go very, very far, especially if he can hit out on his forehand, he can use his power, and he can finish points at the net like he did um, in that U.S. Open final. He, he showed some very good things, and he should have a newfound confidence. And now he's made two straight slam semifinals. He should feel good about that, and I do expect him to have a good tournament. The draw will be out on Sunday. It's very important. It will decide many things. I can't wait. It is, uh, it'll be huge. So French Open preview. I'm trying to think. Yeah, French Open preview will come out Thursday. Um, and then there will be a mailbag on Monday. First Monday. Oh, wait, no. Yeah. Okay, assuming I have my dates right, there will be a mailbag, of course, on Monday, first Monday of a major French Open. If you haven't looked, seen my chat with Steve Flink, we recapped the U.S. Open. It was fantastic. I mean, th these are—I uh, know the U.S. Open might seem like old news, but I still couldn't recommend it enough because Steve, uh, Steve is so great. So check that out if you haven't. Remember, Monday Match Analysis is available on all of your favorite podcast platforms. Please leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe, and I will see you next time. At Highland, we're all about celebrating little wins and little ways to innovate digital processes. There's no customer pain point too small for us to help with. Maybe that's why more than half of the Fortune 100 looks to Highland to connect their content and data, improve processes, and turn little efficiencies into big wins for their customers and clients. Highland, intelligent content solutions for innovators everywhere at highland.com. Our house is a mess. Come
morning. I'm Amber Wallen, internet comedian, plant queen, and host of your new favorite podcast, Fly on the Wild. Okay, that's pretty presumptuous to assume that this is going to be their favorite podcast, by the way. Like, come on, Amber. Anyway, that wasp that you just heard interrupt me is my husband. And co-host, Benjamin Wallen, also a comedian, and I host people at our home. I have a great wine collection in my cellar. Well, you it's mean cellar. the mini fridge. It's a mini fridge. It's a mini yeah. fridge. New episodes of Fly on the Wallen drop every Wednesday. Listen in as we discuss relationships, books, and keeping our sweet baby kid alive while we make laughs on the internet. Subscribe to Fly on the Wallen wherever you get your podcast. Yes.